Hey, church family, we're excited to have another Revelation podcast. Um, Josh did one early in the series, and uh, we're doing another one today, uh, mainly to talk about uh, dispensational theology and the uh, millennial view, as well as then the difference with the covenant theology and in, uh, in the millennial view. Um, and so we're a lot of has been stirred about this recently with things going on in the Middle East, specifically uh, Hamas attacking Israel and different people asking questions about that. I've had several guests ask me questions. I haven't had a lot of people that are members of our church ask, but I've had a, several guests the last few weeks asking questions about that with the geopolitical Israel today and how does that fit the end times prophecy or does it? Um, before we get into the questions, uh, we want to talk about Oh, before we get into questions, we want to uh, introduce you who's here. Um, first, uh, Nathan Wingate, one of our pastors. Say hi. Hello. Uh, Josh West, one of our pastors as well. Glad to be with you. And Jennifer Gunther leads our women's ministry. Good morning. All right. If they're listening to it in the morning, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> so uh, before we uh, dive into actual questions about the millennium, we want to kind of put the framework around this. Uh, of the different tiers. We talk about this in starting point class. It's a pretty important concept uh, for Christians to think through. Tier one is kind of essential issues, gospel issues. These are someone's that's saved or not saved. Um, so we'd say God is creator, uh, mankind is sinners, Jesus, uh, crucifixion, resurrection. Those are all tier one essential issues. Then there's tier two issues that um, are important issues. Godly people, though, may disagree um, this is kind of how local churches or denominations are formed. We kind of often say our seven shared values are kind of our tier two issues that doesn't quite fit because gospel centeredness is in there. Um, but it reformed theology, our pneumatology, complementarianism, how we do mission, polity, things like that fit tier two, as well as baptism and Lord's Supper. So they're godly people that we love and read and encourage you to read uh, or listen to that would be differing than how we would view it as a church and as a denomination. Um, so Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung, Sinclair Ferguson, Rosaria Butterfield, they have wonderful things that we love, uh, but we would disagree with them on some tier two issues as well. Then tier three is debatable, sometimes called preferential or opinion or uncertain uh, tiers. And this is basically where a local church will have people within the same congregation that will disagree. And we just need to note that we are going to disagree, and that's okay. And uh, and these are issues people may have some passion about, may not, but we want to hold them and reserve them where we can still have unity as the same local body. So the frequency of the Lord's Supper or worship music or even political issues like economic policy or health care, um, those would all be tier three. And, and our views of the millennium and and uh, Josh is going to get into the different views in just a second. We would put this in a tier three issue. There are godly people within our church who have have the different views, the three different views that Josh is going to cover. So Josh, will you cover those uh, end times views for us? Yeah, so this Sunday we're going to explore a little bit more thoroughly um, what I'd say is really the only passage that actually speaks to the millennium. But here's a basic gist um, of some of the, uh, the major positions as well as um, just highlighting some of the proponents, uh, both current and even in church history, who've held to the the different positions. So the first view would be um, post-millennialism. It's a mouthful. Um, And that sees the the millennium as being kind of a thousand-year period of peace, and that may be literal, may be figurative, but it occurs at the end of human history right before the return of Christ. So post-millennials believe that this period begins once Christ through the church fulfills the Great Commission and all the nations are effectively discipled. So when we read parables about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed or like leaven, um, they're used to support like this slow but sure spread of the gospel. Um, and oftentimes folks who are post-millennials, there's an expectation that revivals and awakenings or conversions, even of governmental leaders, uh, are going to affect the spread of the gospel, um, and eventually the permeation of the world with the gospel. Um, so essentially all the nations are going to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ in that way. So postmodernism carries with it um, the, the actual possibility that we could, we could even be the early church, which is kind of a strange, um, it's just a strange thing to even consider. 
Um, but I would describe the post-millennial view as essentially patient optimism. Mm. So those who have held to post-millennialism would include people like Athanasius, uh, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, there's a big name drop, uh, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and Doug Wilson. Um, amillennialism um, actually sees the thousand years as being a symbolic period that extends the entire time between Christ's first and second comings. Um, this view emphasizes kind of that already not yet tension that we talk about a lot uh, in our church. We see it in scripture. And honestly, that's kind of what we experience in reality. So Christ's kingdom, the idea is Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated. So we read Matthew 4, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it's also not fully realized for Christ instructs his disciples in Matthew 6 to pray like this, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So amillennialism looks at Daniel 7, a famous passage about Christ being the son of man, and they see that as, um, they would interpret that as Christ's ascension. Um, so at Christ's ascension, he's given a kingdom and he's beginning to reign, but as he, as we and um, await the reunion of heaven and earth when his kingdom will fully come on earth. Um, that's, that's essentially that moment at the end of history uh, when all the enemies um, of Christ are subjugated um, and, the, and the kingdom of God comes in fullness. So I would describe amillennialism as being essentially an honest realism. And among amillennialists are Augustine, Calvin, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, and uh, my personal favorite, G.K. Beale. Um, <laughs> so premillennialism um, sees the 1,000 years as a literal time period where Christ reigns bodily on the earth. So according to premillennialists, um, that period occurs after the second coming of Christ, but before the final judgment and establishment of the new heavens and new earth. Now you can break down premillennialism further into two different camps, which would be historic premillennialism, which is the end times position held by some of the early church fathers. And then there's dispensational premillennialism, which we're actually going to talk about more in a minute. And that's actually uh, a development more or less in the last 200 years. So the major difference between the two premillennial views is that dispensationalists believe that the nation of Israel holds a special place in God's end times plans which is going to result in the restoring of a physical temple within Jerusalem, as well as the Levitical priesthood and animal sacrifices. They actually expect to see a return of ceremonial law, the Mosaic system. Dispensational premillennialism also holds to a a literal seven-year period um, of intense tribulation after Christ's second coming, but prior to the millennium. Um, Though There is some debate uh, in the church about when that, that period will be. So in general, I would describe, and I don't know if all of them would necessarily describe themselves that way, um, but I would describe premillennialists as as sort of having this urgent pessimism. So they have generally a negative outlook about what's going to happen in the world prior to Christ's return. Um, and those, but those who've held to premillennialism, um, and I think all of these are actually in the historic premill camp, but... They would include Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Spurgeon, John Piper, D.A. Carson, and Wayne Grudem. So that gives us yeah, a... Yeah, those are all historic pre-mill, not correct. dispensational pre-mill. Correct, yep. yeah. Um, that's really helpful. Thank you for that summary, Josh. And and in some ways, it kind of sounds like amillennialism, post-millennialism, and then historic pre-millennialism <laughs> ah, are in kind of one camp in some ways, and then dispensational premillennialism is kind of in another camp. So kind of talk that through with us, even on the tiers. Uh, what do you think, Nathan? Yeah, so we'll get more into defining dispensationalism versus what's called covenant theology in just a minute. But what I'll say is that um, as we dig into that a little more, we'll see that that difference extends way beyond just how you view this thousand-year reign. Mm -hmm. It really gets into your overall, how you interpret the storyline of Scripture. Mm -hmm. It gets into how you understand the era that we're living in um, now as the church. And it touches on, um, it's hard for me to actually envision preaching through a book of the Bible where that difference wouldn't come into play in some regard. So, So I think 
the dispensational versus covenant theology view actually gets more into the tier two, hmm. actually, because it would be really hard for a local church um, to have pastors um, that are, some of them are dispensationalists, some of them hold to covenant theology. It would be hard to have a coherent understanding of the overall story of scripture so just like mike said um post-millennial amillennial historic pre-millennialism all three of those um those kinds of differences really function more at the tier three level whereas covenant theology versus dispensationalism more is a is a tier two kind of issue and again it's not a tier one issue we're not saying that um, dispensationalists or covenant theologians are not orthodox, not part of the true church, but it would be really difficult to function together as a local body across mm-hmm. that divide. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Um, Nathan, can you kind of distinguish between covenant theology and dispensational? Yeah, so this is probably going to be the most technical portion of the podcast, <laughs> and so um, it just hang in here with us. We feel like this is really important um, to be able to share with you as a church family. Um, So dispensationalism and covenant theology are two different frameworks for understanding and interpreting the overarching story of scripture. These manifest like we talked about in end times views, millennial views, but as you'll see, it's much broader than that. Let me say at the beginning Neither dispensationalism nor covenant theology are monolithic. So not all dispensationalists believe exactly the same thing. Not all covenant theologians believe the same thing. However, I'm going to try to keep this kind of high level and focus on what's definitionally different between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Um, So uh, first, something they have in common. So dispensationalism and covenant theology both present the Bible as an unfolding narrative that progresses and develops over time. So the hermeneutical or the interpretive concept of progressive revelation is present in both of these theological frameworks. The difference comes um, between the two comes in how to understand how these different stages or the different eras of the biblical narrative relate to each other. Um, and we'll flesh that out more here in just a minute. So first, let's let's talk about what is dispensationalism. We've been using this word a lot already. So dispensationalism, like Josh mentioned, um, was a theological framework developed within the last 200 years, and it gets its name for how this view breaks the story of Scripture down into various dispensations or eras. So Um, dispensation means like a period of time or an era. So various dispensations during which God had specific and distinct purposes that he was accomplishing during that dispensation. So classical dispensationalism taught that there are seven eras or dispensations, although now some dispensationalists might parse that out differently. I've seen like some that have up to 10 dispensations, for example. Um, So using classical dispensationalism, you've got the dispensation of innocence in Genesis, then conscience, dispensation of human government, the dispensation of promise that's getting to Abraham. And then from the Exodus through the rest of the Old Testament is the dispensation of law. Then starting with Christ's death, resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit, there's the dispensation of grace. So that's the dispensation that dispensationalists would say that we live in. And then there's a future dispensation of the kingdom age when Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years. So you can hear again how your millennial view comes into play here, but dispensationalism is much broader than just the millennial view. Um, And so the main thing to keep on here with dispensationalism is that each of these dispensations have a distinct purpose. There's a fundamental discontinuity. That's the key word, discontinuity between the dispensations. So we'll come back to that, but just remember that dispensationalism emphasizes discontinuity or differences. Okay, so so that's the definition of dispensationalism. Hopefully you're hanging in there. Um, Now we're going to define covenant theology, which again is, is the kind of other framework for overall understanding the story of Scripture. So whereas dispensationalism organizes the story of Scripture by these dispensations, covenant theology sees that the various covenants that God makes with his people throughout Scripture 
um, sees that those are the backbone of the biblical narrative. The covenants are the overall framework that covenant theology uses to organize and understand the story of Scripture. So Mark Jones defines a covenant as an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. So that's just a quick definition of what a covenant is. Um, so um, in classical covenant theology, you have um, these covenants, the covenant of creation with Adam, um, then God's covenants with Noah, with Abraham, the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, the covenant with David, and then the new covenant in Christ. And when you organize the overall story of Scripture this way, when you look at the story of Scripture based on these covenants, you end up with an interpretive method that emphasizes not a discontinuity between different dispensations, but rather a continuity, a, an overarching story of God's redemptive purposes across these various eras of redemptive history. So it's not that covenant theology denies that there are distinctives between different eras during the progressive revelation of the story of Scripture, but rather that the main emphasis is on the continuity of a, continuity of a single unfolding purpose, um, namely to, for God to redeem mankind and the whole of creation in Christ. Okay, so those are our definitions of dispensationalism and covenant theology. So maybe on the surface, you might not think that there's a really huge difference between these two systems. They both see an unfolding story in Scripture. They both see that there are some differences, but some similarities between the two different eras. So where is the rub? Well, the important difference, and the difference that's going to be the focus of this conversation today, really comes down to one thing, and it's the relationship between Israel and the church. Okay. So a minute ago, I said that the key point in dispensationalism is the discontinuity or the differences between the dispensations. Dispensationalism holds that Israel and the church are two distinct groups. Now, the distinction between Israel and the church is not just an outworking of dispensationalism. This is actually embedded into how dispensationalists define their theology. So listen to this definition of dispensationalism by a dispensationalist, Michael Lester. So this is a bit of a mouthful, but just listen for this Israel church distinction in this definition, okay? So just listen for that. So Michael Lester says, dispensationalism is a system of historical progression consisting of a series of stages of God's self-revelation to man, anchored by a historical grammatical hermeneutic, which results in a distinction between Israel and the church, and which also unifies progressive revelation around a doxological purpose. Now, I'm not going to flesh out everything that he means about doxological purpose and historical grammar, grammatical hermeneutic, but the main point is that you can hear, even in this definition, that one of the main points, if not the main point of this distinction, is how dispensationalism um, maintains a sharp distinction between the church and Israel. Um, Stephen Wellam um, says this, which I think is really helpful. For all varieties of dispensationalism, Israel refers to an ethnic national people, and the church is never a transformed, restored, eschatological, or end times Israel in God's plan. The salvation of Gentiles, again, this is within the dispensational framework, is not part of the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel as a nation now realized in the church. So what this practically results in is that there are two peoples, two people of God in the dispensational framework. There's ethnic Israel, and there's the church. Um, in a dispensational hermeneutic or interpretive principle, the Old Testament promises about the land and their victory over their enemies were promises that were made to ethnic Israel, and they will be fulfilled to ethnic Israel in the millennium. And they don't have anything to do with the church at all. Um, and that might strike people as a bit surprising um, to hear that, but it, there, is a, there is a very sharp distinction. There's, mm -hmm. there, there, the, what's happening in the church during the church age has nothing to do with the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises to Israel in the dispensational view. So the blessings that the church receives under the dispensation of grace, the dispensation that we live in, are spiritual blessings, 
the blessings that Israel receives under their dispensation and, and fulfilled in the millennium are physical and temporal blessing. And there's a very sharp distinction between the two. Okay, so let's contrast this briefly against covenant theology. So covenant theology affirms the continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament and sees that all of the Old Testament covenants, the covenants with Abraham, Noah, uh, I'm sorry, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David all find their fulfillment in Christ. How this pertains to the Israel church relationship is that covenant theologians argue that God has one people across redemptive history, and his purpose for that one people is to redeem them from every nation, tribe, and tongue by the blood of Jesus. In a covenant, theologi- covenant theology framework, the Old Testament prophecies made to Israel were expanded into their final and fullest form with the coming of Christ and the establishment of the church, Jew and Gentile, as God's one people. And I'll, I'll, I'll add one more thought here, which I think is so important. Um, in covenant theology, the understanding is that the Old Testament sacrificial system and the law and the temple were always intended to point to something greater than themselves. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's something I'm sure we'll circle back on later um, as we get further into this. That's really good, Nathan. Thank you for that explanation. So you got the high view and some details of dispensationalism and covenant theology. Let's talk about some of the outworkings of experience. So Jennifer and Josh, you guys both kind of grew up in uh, dispensational churches or mm-hmm. th- theologically. So tell us, like, what did you guys experience? How did this uh, affect how you lived, viewed scripture, viewed God, whatever, like, Give us some of your experiences. Yeah, well, I'll start. Um, I grew up in that dispensational framework that you just described for us, Nathan. So I taught and believed that Israel was God's chosen people. We read their story in the Old Testament, um, but that when their Messiah arrived, they rejected him. So sort of as a plan B, I don't know if they would call it plan B, but (laughs) that's how it felt. As a plan B, God establishes a second chosen people in the church. Um, And the the gospel and salvation goes throughout the world to the Gentiles. And that's the dispensation or the age we're in, the church age or the age of grace, right? Um, And that's going to continue for an unknown amount of time until uh, God raptures his church, the second chosen people, out of the world and then picks up where he left off with Israel, his original chosen people. Um, So that's what I believed, what I was taught. Um, And I think the two, there's probably more, but two main implications of that for me is it really affected our relationship as the church, as New Covenant believers, with the Old Testament. Because that wasn't our story, that was Israel's story. Of course, we still believed it was the inspired word of God, Um, But sort of the best we could do with it is we can kind of indirectly learn from their example. Um, Even within that, though, there was a little bit of an inconsistency for me because sometimes there would be a passage saying, this is for Israel, this promise, this is not for us. But then a few chapters later, a message that was very much applied to us. (laughs) So sometimes it didn't seem exactly clear. You know, uh, are we supposed to apply this for us or are we not? Um, And then the other piece was our relationship with Israel, the ethnic geopolitical state, because if the promises made to Abraham are still for the biological descendants of Abraham, and God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Well, we want God's blessings, right? So we better bless Abraham's family. So we better be an ally to them, be be quick to defend them, to help them. Um, and so, of course, that affected you know politics and a whole lot of other things mm-hmm. yeah that's helpful i i would just say that um you know to be honest i don't i don't remember a ton about my experience <laughs> in dispensationalism um i was telling them earlier like i i feel like when my view shifts sometimes it's hard for me to get back in that but i will say i do have a rem- i do have a good memory of like growing up within a church where dispensationalism and even dispensational premillennialism were really the only legitimate options, right? Like I don't, I don't even remember anything else being presented uh, as a possibility. It's like, oh, you can interpret scripture in a different way. Um, So 
I, I just didn't know that was a thing. Um, everybody that I knew was at least familiar with the Schofield Bible or had one. Um, and if you don't know, like the Schofield Bible was kind of popularized premillennialism um, and particularly dispensationalism among, um, among Orthodox Christians. I think there's probably, I don't know if you were planning on hitting this or not, but I would say there's kind of a number of different things that for me sort of began to like shift my view. Um, and like a number of those resources were probably just more like the drip, drip, drip. Um, but I would say two major things that like I think impacted me in a significant way were one, Sam Storm's book, like Kingdom Come, um, which one of the things that I really, really appreciated about that book, and I'd already started to see this, but one of the things I saw in his book was like he really helped me to see like Jesus as the interpretive lens within like the, the biblical narrative. So like as I look at the overarching story of scripture, like everything finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so that was really, really helpful for me. The other book that was extremely helpful for me uh, was G.K. Beale's book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. So it's basically a biblical theology of the dwelling place of God. Um, and what Beale helped me to see in that book was how essentially the more physical realities are actually a shadow of the true realities which are more spiritual in nature. And so we actually see this in a number of different passages like Hebrews 8.5, Colossians 2.17, it's even in Hebrews 10.1. But if we look at like this movement from like the first Adam to the last Adam, like this is, a, this is essentially a movement from a physical representative uh, of the old humanity to a spiritual representative of a new humanity. And I, you know, I know we'll touch on the Israel piece more in a minute, but essentially you have physical atoms, physical descendants, and the ethnic nation of Israel. And then you have the spiritual atoms, spiritual descendants in the church. Um, and likewise, when we kind of move from the old covenant to the new covenant, we kind of move from physical circumcision to a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Um, and I think like one of the more significant changes um, it, again, in terms of the development from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, is with the temple. So we see the old temple was a physical structure made of limestone, right? And the new structure, this new temple is a spiritual structure made of people, living stones, as First Peter says, with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. If you think about it, like even the cultural mandate, right? Like where, where God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Like it's a... It's a, um, it's a move. There's a movement from that to the, um, the the great commission where we're told to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing them. There's this same type of movement from a physical work in the old creation to essentially a spiritual work as a part of new creation. I don't want to like flatten that too much because I think there's still physical components, there's still spiritual components previously, but. In a, in, a, in a major way, the movement of the whole of Scripture is, is this arc of, like, we start with, with something that's purely or largely physical and a movement to something that is, in, in a sense, um, significantly spiritual. And if I could just add something to that, I agree with that, Josh. And I think one thing that people may have a concern about when they hear something like that. It's like, oh, this is transitioning from something that's real to something that's less real. Right. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'd be talking about this in Revelation chapter 21 uh, next Sunday. But the spiritual realities are the true reality. Correct, yeah. And um, the only reason why we don't experience them as the most real thing is because of sin. But one day when heaven and earth are reunited, we will experience the fullness of the spiritual realities and we will enter into true reality itself. And so the book of Hebrews, if you're looking for a place to go, like the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you to, uh, the listeners to read the book of Hebrews and see how the New Testament authors understood the relationship between the old and the new covenant. And what they're saying is, in effect, is like, they had something that was shadowy. They had something that was mm -hmm. um, temporary and something that was not really substantive. We've come to the real thing now mm -hmm. um, with the coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that helps people just understand we're not, 
spiritualizing away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in in fact, it's it's quite the opposite. Um, we've got the real thing now in Christ. Yeah, that's good. I agree. Uh, Hebrews was hugely helpful for me, and saying the new covenant has made the old obsolete. Not because it was bad, but because the new is so much better. Mm-hmm. So if, if the old covenant ends with not all of the old covenant promises fulfilled, you know, Israel isn't in all of that land that was promised them. They don't have a son of David reigning over them. The question is, are we still waiting for some era in the future when God is going to fulfill those? Or did the new covenant bring fulfillment and expansion? Um, I think there's a lot of passages we could talk about, but two others that were really helpful for me. Galatians 3, Paul says, The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one offspring, who is Christ. Mm-hmm. He's the offspring of Abraham who inherits the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And then that chapter goes on to say that we have put on Christ. Mm-hmm. So we are Abraham's offspring. Um, and then 2 Corinthians one twenty says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Mm-hmm. So every single promise, even the land promise, like we wouldn't go backward to looking for some fulfillment in this small patch of land in the Middle East when God is in the process of putting the entire world under Christ's feet. That's so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah, that's super helpful, Jennifer. One of the illustrations that I heard in this regard that was super helpful was the idea of, you know, particularly with regards to the temple, and I can't remember if it was Beale that came up with this or if I'd heard this somewhere else, but it it, it gives a, a helpful picture of kind of what we've been talking about here with the movement from one shadowy reality to a more a, a more significant reality, a true reality. Of, and and the, the way that the illustration goes, it's like, you know, if we were to have somebody, um, if we just put ourselves in a place of, you know, being people who experience the Model T, right? So we're getting to drive around in this thing and we're like, yeah, this is great. We've never seen anything like this before. And then, you know, we fast forward to a future era where now we're driving around Porsches and like like all these uh, really fancy cars. Like it wouldn't make any sense for us to go back backward. Like it would be, was it re- regressive? It would be, you know, um, it would be nonsensical in some ways for us to revert back to the Model T when we had this new and better reality. Yeah. Well, that's really good. Thank you, guys. Um, next question. What are some concerns? And so, Jennifer, I think you can speak to this. What are some concerns that dispensationalists express about covenant theology? I think one uh, is that there's a fear that if we accept a symbolic interpretation of some of these these passages we see in biblical prophecy, uh, what's to stop us from interpreting all of Scripture symbolically? And next mm-hmm. thing we know, we're denying a literal virgin birth or a literal uh-huh. bodily resu- resurrection. Um, and so there's this fear that this this is kind of the slippery slope that will lead us into theological liberalism. Um, but I think I would respond to that, you know, biblical literacy will really help us there the same way that we approach different English literary genres with the expectation that some are literal and some are not. I read a newspaper article expecting literal numbers and facts, uh, but I still have a category for other genres that are going to employ a lot of figurative language. The Bible is the exact same way. So, you know, we're not going to bend on the things we read in narrative accounts of Jesus's life, like his miracles and his resurrection and his virgin birth. But we can embrace the genres like poetry and prophecy that use a lot of figurative language. We can read them that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we, um, what's critical there is we have the precedent of the apostolic teaching for how to interpret the Old Testament. So when you read the, uh, the epistles, they're interpreting the Old Testament typologically over and over and over again. They're interpreting it typologically. They're expanding the promises. So just a couple examples um, in Ephesians, Paul quotes um, the fifth commandment and he applies it to Gentile children and says, 
this is the first, honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with the promise that you may live long in the land. So that even has a land promise embedded into it. Mm. But Ephesians is all about how this Jew-Gentile divide has been erased in Christ. Mm. Um, Another one that's not necessarily specific to a land promise, but I just think this one's really interesting, is is when Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about not muzzling the oxen when it's treading out the grain. And and he even says, this isn't talking about oxen. Mm -hmm. He says, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Is this not written entirely for our sake upon whom the end of the ages has come? Mm -hmm. And so there's there's this awareness among the apostles of, this eschatological, this eschatological, this end times realization of what God had been doing through the entire course of redemptive history. So, so let's just interpret the Old Testament the same way as the apostles did. That's good. That's really helpful. So um, I think some people might be wondering this. If the church is the one people of God, does that mean we don't really care about geopolitical Israel right now? Yeah, and and so this is an interesting question. So I'll say, um, within the covenant theology framework, and in case it hasn't become clear yet, we haven't stated it explicitly, we would recommend, commend, um, a desire for our local body to understand and interpret Scripture through a covenant theology framework rather than through a dispensational framework. So it's probably obvious by now. Um, so, but I just want to say that explicitly. So, um, so within covenant theology framework, um, uh, there are still, uh, many who, uh, believe that there is still a, um, future revival that will happen among ethnic Israel. And the reason for that is not because of all these Old Testament promises about the land. It's because of the apostolic teaching, particularly in Romans chapter 11. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone believes that what Paul says about the full inclusion of Israel is a something that's in our future. Some um, some teachers think that this is talking about something in the first century, but I would say maybe even the majority of covenant theologians would see that this is a future event yet um, for um, ethnic Israel. But, but here's the key is, what is that event? If you read Romans chapter 11, it talks about this olive tree. There's one olive tree, which is the covenant people of God. It's the promises, the Abrahamic seed, and the inclusion of Israel is then being grafted back in to the one true people of God because of repentance and faith in mm. Jesus Christ, just how Gentiles are grafted into that one tree. And so um, if you're wanting to read more about that, a book that I could recommend is called The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray, um, which is about um, it's about revival, but it's it has a lot in there about um, these covenant theologians of the 18th and 19th century who had a passion to see ethnic Israelites come to know Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so um, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, what he's he doesn't mean by that that these distinctions are completely obliterated. So slaves and frees in the next, in Colossians he gives commands to slaves and he gives different commands to their masters. Slaves obey your masters. Um, uh, husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands. So these distinctions aren't obliterated in Christ. Um, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that these distinctions don't create any division, but um, or you know there's no hierarchy or tiers or distinctions between. Um, the one among the one true people of God. He, in the next verse, he says, "You are Christ's. If you are Abraham, and if you are, then you're Abraham's offsprings. Heir, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." So that's mm-hmm. what he's talking about. So we don't have to say that that um, you, we don't have to be like you know like colorblind between like Jew and Greek. Like that distinction still can remain, but it doesn't remain in the sense that there's two separate people of God. Our hope for the Jewish nation is our hope for all the other nations that they would repent and come and trust in Jesus Christ. On top of that, a lot of people hold to that, that there's even an extra promise there that, that there will be a widespread um, revival among the Jewish nation at some point in the future. It's really good. So what about the current conflict with Israel and Hamas? Uh, How should we be thinking about that? Yeah, so um, 
as covenant theologians, we can be very pro-Israel in this conflict, but not pro-Israel based on an eschatological end times framework, kind of like what Jennifer was describing, where like, you know, um, uh, um, it will, America will be blessed if we are faithful to be an ally to ethnic Israel because of these promises in Genesis 12. Um, we can look at principles of truth. We can look, look at principles of justice and see that um, not universally in every situation, but very broadly speaking, um, Israel has been waging war according to principles of truth and justice, whereas Hamas has not. And I think this can be very easily um, stated, and everyone's probably heard this, but I think it's very true. Like, if Israel put down their weapons, there would be no more Israel. If Hamas put down their weapons, there would be peace, right? And I, I think we can look at um, uh, unbiased news sources and see that that's largely the case. And so... We can be supportive of um, of Israel in this conflict without it having to be stemming from misguided eschatological expectations. I would compare it to some degree. Okay, so take this with a grain of salt. I'll compare it some to some degree to how we can be pro-Ukraine with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, um, so there's claims to land. Some claims to land are valid. Some are invalid. There's um, aggressors and defenders. And so I think there's a lot of parallels there. And so what we don't want uh, people to take away from this conversation is that we're saying, oh, you know, you know, everything's all equal. We don't, we can't really have any opinions about what's going on between Israel and Hamas right now. Like, but let's use biblical principles of, of, truthfulness, biblical principles of justice to be our governing um, factors for how we think about and how we pray about these things rather than an eschatological um, framework. That's really good. So let's end with this and we'll just kind of go around. What? How does this, your covenant theology, Jennifer, Josh, Nathan, how does it work out practically for you? Why does this matter in your life practically? I guess I'll go first. <laughs> um, um, you know, a couple things. So I think, you know, you guys are preaching through Revelation for us. I think that we should all consider if our interpretation of, you know, Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. something that was shrouded in mystery is now being made clear. And the original audience it was being made clear for was seven churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. More broadly speaking, the broader audience is all of us between Christ's two advents. Um, But if your interpretation is such that only the current generation could possibly understand this book in light of current events, then that's not a good interpretation. Um, But then secondly, I would also say... Um, if you're operating under a dispensational framework and so you see sort of two chosen peoples of God, Israel and the church, um, you have two different kingdoms that require, require loyalty. One is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is not yet fully realized on earth, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. Um, one is a physical kingdom, an ethnic geopolitical nation state. A physical kingdom is established and defended by physical means. So things like political candidates, military strength, essentially anything that gets you earthly power is super important. We'll do everything it takes to grasp at and maintain that power. Um, But our spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is upside down. Um, Our king emptied himself, and we follow him in that path not grasping at power as the way the world sees it, but laying down our very lives and resources. Uh, we become not powerful at all in the eyes of the world, but according to 1 Corinthians 1, in the eyes of the world, low and despised and foolish and weak. Um, but if you have two kingdoms kind of that you feel a sense of loyalty to, uh, one physical, one spiritual, uh, one requires you to amass earthly power and one requires you to forfeit 
earthly power, those are eventually going to be in conflict. And when that happens, a lot of times the one that will win is not the one we see by faith, but the one we see by sight, the one that's right in front of us. Yeah. It's good. So so you're te- you just touched on like the how our understanding of covenant versus dispensational theology affects us. I'm going to speak specifically to the, the millennial uh, aspects that we talked about earlier, but I would just say, you know, practically speaking, um, we look at the different views of the end times. Like if we, you know, hold to premillennialism or awe or post, that is going to significantly affect our expectation uh, of what, you know, what we are going to experience, um, which is then going to affect our attitude and our actions to some degree as well in the present. So again, more with premillennialist, if we have a sense that, um, you know, and again, I, I don't mean to overstate this, but I'm, I'm overstating it on purpose just so you get the sense. But if we have this sense that everything is largely going to hell in a handbasket, right? And, uh, but yet Jesus is going to return one day to bring his kingdom and restore all things. We might find ourselves largely focusing on our personal holiness and evangelism um, and sort of having a negative view on any real cultural in- influence that we might have through our labors. Um, on the flip side, if with postmillennialists we believe that the millennial reign will be, you know, in part ushered in through a faithful proclamation of, of the gospel and the leavening of the earth with our gospel efforts, um, such that revivals and conversion of governmental leaders are going to effectively shape nations, then we're going to find ourselves um, hoping or working toward, uh, I should say, not that we are, we might find ourselves potentially hoping and working for some kind of Christian nationalism or something to that effect. Like that could be one of the outworkings of that. So that's just how, and obviously amillennialism sort of finds its reality in the middle somewhat. Um, but again, it's going to affect our expectations. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, as far as why this matters practically, um, I've heard, um, and I've, uh, I was talking with some others recently that have heard similar sentiments um, where uh, um, within a dispensational framework you can come to a, a perspective of basically like, well, the reason why God isn't judging America is because we're holding fast to Israel. And um, uh, there's several, I think, so what, what that mean, what that says to me is that dispensationalism can um, result in you having a distorted view of not only world events, but even what's going on in our own, own nation. If you read Romans 1, God is judging America already. Mm-hmm. Like we're really deep into the judgment cycle actually. And so if you think that our like geopolitical affiliations are going to stave off and it's going to be really real here. Like if you think that our geopolitical affiliations are going to stave off God's judgment on our nation, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not how God operates with nations mm-hmm. within redemptive history. And so, um, so um, the only thing that's going to, Let's say you know, America may not last much longer. Who knows? But let's let let's say it's God's goodwill for America to to be around for another few hundred years or something like that. The only thing that's going to do that is repentance and revival. It's not going to be geopolitical affiliations. So I think that's I think that's a practical outworking here. And then get, taking it a little bit more ho- close to home, um, kind of along the lines of what Josh was talking about our uh, outlook. We hope that the members of our church, whoever's listening to this podcast would understand that you aren't living in a like a plan B era and and that's not too strong a way of putting it Jennifer you know what I mean like I mean um we are living under the prophesied reign of King Jesus mm-hmm. and living in the fulfillment of his prophet uh, his promises to his people and yes we see it in an already realized but not yet consummated but um, like Hebrews talks about, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We are living in the prophesied reign of the Messiah. And I think that really affects your outlook on your day-to-day life, um, that you're not living in a kind of a, a plan B era, but you're living like this is this has been God's plan like God, the whole time. Um, and I'm part of that. Um, and so um, I think that, that that is a... a a helpful 
a much better framework to be living your life under. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. One last kind of just practical is just living in the, I've, I've seen this people living in the stress of trying to read the times mm-hmm. of what's going on in the news. I mean, I've had people in the last month or two, like the very first conversation I've ever had with them in my life. And they're bringing up what, what happened in Israel hey, do you think that's a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38, 39? Or, hey, we've got something close to Revelation 12 or like that kind of conversation where you are are living by the headlines to see scripture rather than living in scripture and resting there Mm -hmm. and being faithful to the mission of Jesus there in daily life. Yeah, and, and just piggybacking off that, Mike, like when we talk about faithfulness to the mission, if we look at where the locus, like the center of what God's doing in the world right now is, it's on the peripheral boundaries of where the gospel is going forward to the nations. It's mm-hmm. it's not focused primarily around a um, geopolitical entity. And so I think um, that's another practical outworking here is where are we focusing our attention? Let's focus our attention where Jesus called us to focus yeah. the attention to, to go into, go to all the nations and make disciples. So good. Well, that's all the questions we have. Um, and so thank you, Nathan, Jennifer, Josh, for taking time. Hopefully this has been helpful for you, church family. Uh, please know that we're all available to talk. So if you have more questions, um, grab one of us and we'd love to talk more. If we don't know the answer, we'll, we'll find it together. We don't know the answers to all this and we're all learning together as we go. Um, there's different books and resources and uh, uh, links of blog posts and stuff we'd love to send. Uh, are we going to do a realm post on some of that? All right, we're going to have a realm post uh, for you uh, so you can see some of that. So hopefully you enjoy this. And if you have questions, we would love to serve you by having more discussion. We hope this is a a seed that grows as you want to grow in learning and, and loving the gospel all the more. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Jennifer. Josh. Yep. Yep. Thanks. It's been a joy.